0: Two mad dogs and Englishmen getting on something like a regular schedule again after our <clears throat> previous disruption. Charlie, what's um? I'm trying to think of the stereotypical English food. So, if people from San Antonio are breakfast tacos, I guess people from Fredericksburg must be kolaches. People from Philadelphia, cheesesteaks, maybe pretzels, or that one bakery they all like. Uh, people from New York are what bad pizza by the slice pizza from people from uh los angeles or sushi i suppose people from san francisco or sprouts you're like tea and uh blood pudding or something what's uh what's your thing bangers uh, now you're, you're you're spotted dick I've, i think i've decided uh, that's that
1: is one it. that is one and then yeah. it's bangers and mash cool. and fish and chips
0: Fish and chips, yeah, of course. How could I forget the uh, fish and chips? Although, you know what, this will this will start a fight between us. But um, I think of fish and chips as an Irish thing, um, simply because ninety percent of the places I've encountered fish and chips have been, you know, so called Irish pubs in the United States.
1: That's fair enough. You know, the the way to find out what the stereotypical uh, English fare. Is is to look up what they serve at the Rosen Crown Dining Room at Epcot's World Showcase.
0: Naturally, which is which is what these days. Well, do I don't
1: know? know. I'm just bringing up the menu now. Here we go. We can find out. So,
0: first <laughs> thing course, on we the menu, know what people eat, which is curry.
1: That's the national dish. <laughs> yeah. So the the first two entrees on this menu are fish and chips. Yes. And bangers and mash, so I do know my country. Of birth.
0: All right, at least at least you know your Disney.
1: But there's more on here. There is shepherd's mm. pie. That's a good one. Welsh pub burger. Yeah, it's more of an English yeah, twist on an American dish. Yeah. But here you go, chicken masala curry. There you
0: are. Oh, good. I'm glad they got it. Oh, and I'm here we, we go. This is good.
1: Fits. Mushy peas as a side and bubble and squeak. Oh, yeah.
0: And what is bubble and squeak?
1: It's essentially lots of vegetables and leftovers all mixed together and sort of fried up.
0: So, yeah, okay, typically typically British. And then for dessert, you have sticky toffee <laughs> it's, pudding. Deep-fried deep, deep, deep fried garbage, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, sticky toffee, naturally, yeah. Huh? And English trifle. Trifle, I knew the trifle would be in there. I feel pretty good about that. So for those of you who are wondering why we are... Um, talking about the horrors of British cuisine. So Jill Biden was at, um, do we call it a Latino Latinx Latinx Latinum? <laughs> uh, if we want to do a, a Latin style, uh, neuter, uh, thing. And she went through a, um, weird little litany where she was saying, you know, you people are as unique as this and that and the other. And when she got to San Antonio, she said, uh, Breakfast tacos. What did she say? In, in New York, it was bodegas. <laughs> I think she, she was attempting to pronounce the word bodega, but didn't quite uh, get it out. And uh, she stood in front of an audience of people in San Antonio and called them tacos. That was awesome. <laughs> so her list... This did not uh, go over well. Now, you and I both have a lot of thoughts about this. You wrote a piece that I very much enjoyed, mocking the whole Latinx thing um because it is ridiculous and and the thing was called like the connection right with another x in there or something or diversity connection what was it sorry what do you mean the event had a funny name with an x put in oh yeah
1: the latin x inclusion
0: inclusion yes that's what it was. <laughs> like connection you could actually put an x in but uh, inclusion yeah that's just uh, uh, luxion it wasn't a luncheon
1: I love this because it makes no sense. (laughs) In a sense, you have three words in the title and three different sets of rules. So the first word is, or was, or could be presumed to be Latino. But because they Mm. want to avoid the implication, which is that all Latino and Latina and non-binary people are male... They change it mm. to Latin X.
0: Can I just interrupt for one second? And I know this has been remarked upon many times by many people, but it is a tremendous irony that we're creating the synthetic identity for people based on the fact that they all have backgrounds in Spanish speaking countries and cultures. And we designate them with something that particularly uh, eludes the Spanish language, which is by nature, are gendered languages, the Romance languages are.
1: It's also hilarious that the people who consider themselves to be anti-imperialists are telling foreigners that their
0: language is offensive. <laughs> but, telling Spanish people, speaking people how to spell Spanish words. Yeah, that's
1: but, uh, tremendous. But <laughs> as in, say, French, the way that gendered languages work with groups is that they take the male form.
0: Uh, Not and always,
1: but... If often. you have a group of men it's male. If you have a group of men with one woman, it's male. If you have a group of women with one man, it's male. At least it's supposed to be. Now, in reality, you would probably see some variation. But the point is here that in order to avoid saying Latino to describe everyone at this inclusion luncheon, the <laughs> organizers changed it to Latinx. Okay. Looney, but makes its own internally logical sense but then they took a word that isn't spanish and isn't gendered inclusion and they changed a random word in it so it's inclusion so you've got the latin x inclusion and then they didn't do it to the next word which is also not a spanish word and not gendered why it's it's it, it as the sentence progresses the rules change at every single space
0: well, you yeah, know, you think about it with two X's, that's, that could be read as two X chromosomes. Oh, you true. Know, which, which takes us back to they've, this. They've, they've, they've regendered it by degendering it.
1: And here's the other thought that I don't get why is it important to call the event the Latin X Inclusion Luncheon, but not for the speech that was delivered at the Latin X Inclusion Luncheon to D gender, in many cases, the same words. I looked it up. Right. And we'll get to this in a moment with your take on the First Lady as an institution. But I looked it up on the White House website, the prepared text of Dr. Jill Biden's speech. And the first <coughs> sentence includes the word Latino. Uh oh. So she said, <laughs> hello, Latinos. <laughs> At the Latinx Inclusion Luncheon. Then...
0: She said hello. Did She didn't say hola, Latinos.
1: Her pronunciation is astonishing. <laughs> Do you remember that a <laughs> speech she gave?
0: No, Anyhow, I, I somehow missed that one.
1: But the sentence that got all of the attention is also full of gendered terms. She says... Well, she it didn't is. say bodega. She tried to say bodega. Bodega is a gendered Spanish word. Uh, she said taco. Taco is a gendered Greek Spanish word.
0: Is that right? Yeah, it came to Spanish from Greek. Oh, I didn't know that.
1: And uh, she said San Antonio, which is a gendered Spanish uh, name. and <laughs> Indeed it is. And Catholic at that. So I, I suppose what I'm asking, as somebody who thinks this is all nonsense, is what am I supposed to hold on to as the, the principle of the story? Because what I see is no rules whatsoever. Am I wrong?
0: No, I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think it's ridiculous posture. Uh, you know, you just mentioned Bodega. That's a sort of interesting, you know, uh, example of this because things do move through cultures and languages, sort of evolve according to their own terms. You know, it's from the same root as the word um, apothecary. Uh, one of them ends up looking like a uh, you know feminine gendered Spanish word. One of them looks like you know a, uh, a typical English adaptation of a Greek or Latin word, and um, it is just infinitely silly to pretend that the very real problems of discrimination against women or trans people or other sort of things like that are somehow exacerbated or have anything to do with calling the chairman of the board the chairman of the board instead of the chairperson of the board or the chairwoman of the board or whatever, or the chairman of the committee, or to call Latino people Latino people because this is a word that is um, masculine in form. You know, the whole idea that um, grammatical gender is related in some uh, very, very strong way to – biological sex is silly and it's not really a, uh, a feature of the romance languages. You know, in, in Latin, you've got words that are masculine in meaning, but feminine in form like poeta for poet and uh, the word for farmer and the word for sailor. Um, these are people who the occupational words that are associated with um, men. Typically they didn't have female sailors in ancient Rome. They didn't have female farmers in ancient Rome. Um, but the words, um, end in A, as though they were uh, feminine words, and that's just how the language evolved. It has to do with uh, who knows what back in the way ancient history of pre-Latin. But, you know, if you were a Latin-speaking person and you refer to some man as a poeta, no one's going to be confused and think you're talking about a woman, uh, because they know how their language works. And Spanish-speaking people, I presume, know how the Spanish language works, too. Not that uh, the people in the United States that we describe as Hispanic or Latino or whatever actually speak Spanish in many cases. A lot of them don't. Um, point that I made my, my piece on this and it's an endlessly irritating thing to me is um, I mean, the whole idea of Latino people is just kind of silly. I think um, people who come from say Cuban American backgrounds who immigrated to Florida, in the 1950s and 1960s, aren't really very culturally, socially, economically, politically like. Um, Oh, you know, people who originally came from the Canary Islands who started the first ranches in the Spanish Empire in Texas in the 18th century. Um, Some of those families who've been in the same, you know, communities and on the same land since the 1790s and things like that. Uh, they are not – and those Mexican-Americans are not – or I guess not really Mexican-Americans, but they started communities in something that eventually became Mexico for a while before it became the United States. But you know, the Mexican-Americans who live in South Texas are not very much like the Mexican-Americans who live in Los Angeles. And we'll hear these political types say, well, I don't understand. How do these you know, Latinos in Texas vote in such a radically different way from Latinos in California? Really, you're surprised that people in Texas don't like, vote like people in California. Uh, it's just you know, it's an it's an idiotic way of looking at things that there's this weird synthetic identity that's supposed to supplant um, all the other you know sort of functional relevant realities to these people's lives, and then to flatten the whole thing by calling them tacos was just a nice way to um, to put the uh, to put the cap on the whole thing. And as you pointed out, and, and I think I did as well. Tacos are not actually a very good metaphor for uniqueness. Um, you know, breakfast tacos are sort of a Texas thing. They aren't really a Latino thing, and they're a particularly San Antonio thing. So she was right about that. But the thing about tacos is they're kind of all alike. You know, they make them in batches. They don't really—they're not artisanal. Uh, you know, created uh, from a fresh recipe every time you make a taco. You know, you make tacos by the scores and by the dozens, and uh, pretty much. The 50th taco looks a lot like the 51st taco, looks a lot like the 151st taco. It's just a silly, ridiculous thing. Yeah,
1: to your point about there being no substantive connection between masculine and feminine nouns and the masculinity or femininity of the thing. Yeah, you speak that French. Describing. There's going to be
0: examples of that in French.
1: Well, I was going to say, even in a language that doesn't have masculine and feminine nouns, English. Yeah, we often refer and have done throughout our history uh, to the most important things in our culture and our political culture. A she, long like before and ships, exactly. Now that does largely stem from Latin, in that the Latin for ship is navis, which is which is feminine. But the idea here is supposed to be that if you repeat. Over and over again, these gendered nouns, then they create these social constructs that affect our politics. And so, you know, we hear about the sexist nature of American history. Women didn't get the vote till 1920 and so on. True. But in the 18th century, Britain and America were referred to by the powers that be and in official documents as she, the British Navy. The world's most powerful military force for a century was full of she's. So this connection, even if you think that this is how culture works, that everything is the product of linguistic expression, which I very much don't. But even if you do, that connection doesn't really exist in uh, the way that its advocates believe.
0: Sort of vulgar Sussurianism and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, so Jill, Jill Biden, Dr. Dr. Jill Biden, (sighs) tacos.
1: So you don't think that Dr. Jill Biden should have an official title and an official office and be presented to the world as a constituent part of the White House in the way that, say, the vice president is?
0: I hate first ladies. I really do. And if there's ever a, a first dude, as uh, they proposed to call Sarah Palin's husband if she were elected president, I'm going to hate them too. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a very uh, committed small R Republican. I hate everything that sort of smacks of monarchism and you know kind of continental aristocracy and that sort of thing in our government. I just don't like it. And I think it's in bad taste. I think it doesn't make, make sense for us as a people. I'm perfectly happy for the British to be monarchists if they want to be, but we're not the British. And there's a, there's a reason for that. So just as I have um, proposed radically reducing the State of the Union, uh, preferably to a letter uh, sent to Congress instead of this ridiculous circus uh, they point, put on every year, I would like to get rid of the title of First Lady. Stop using it. Get rid of all the official White House offices and programs related to the First Lady, First Lady staff, all that kind of stuff. We are a republic, and in a republic, you don't become some special person socially because your spouse is elected to a position. In fact, your spouse actually shouldn't become a sort of special person socially because he is elected to a position. So if the president's wife is the first lady, uh, that presumably makes him the first man of the realm, which is something that a prince is, not a president. The president of the United States is just the head of one branch of the federal government for four years or maybe eight. That's all he is, and that's how he ought to be treated. And the idea that we're going to treat these people like a sort of temporary royal family is uh, nauseating to me. And its um, I think it's bad for us politically and bad for us socially, too. You know, we've created this, um, a presidency that is too powerful politically and too powerful structurally in Washington, which you and I have spoken a lot about, but also just too big a footprint in the culture, um, making it into this kind of swollen kind of celebrity, uh, who is a national mascot and a kind of weird personification of the American people. You know, part of the bitterness and stupidity of our fights over presidential elections have to do with this ceremonial, um, ritualistic character of the president and the presidency and the first ladies are are, are part of that. You know, I remember when uh, when when Trump was elected and um, you know his wife was a model and a lot of people thought of her as being very attractive although well, not really my taste but whatever. Um, and a lot of people, you know, you'd hear, well, I'm, you know, I'm proud of my country now because we have this, um, this, you know, lovely, attractive model as the first lady. And wasn't it awful when it was Hillary or wasn't it awful when it was Michelle Obama? A lot of people hated Michelle Obama for various reasons. And, um, I would just prefer not even think about it. Of course, it's going to be a curiosity. Like, you know, if you're married to someone famous, you know, if you were married to, uh, you know, a movie star or a rock star or something like that, or, uh, Uh, So someone I met some time ago, and she was married to a guy who was a well-known NFL coach. I guess all NFL coaches are pretty well-known. And um, so it was kind of like part of her social identity. You know, people say, oh, you know, your husband's an interesting guy, blah, blah, blah. But it's not, you know, she doesn't have some kind of weird special role in in the world because of of who her spouse is. And I think we should strip the presidency of that stuff just as much as we can, everywhere we can, as fast as we can.
1: Yeah, I like the comparison you drew with the CEO of IBM in your piece. You said well we don't know who his wife is and why would we? It's irrelevant to his job. And I liked it because I thought it was the correct analogy. I also liked it because it tracked almost identically with a related objection that I have and a related analogy that I have drawn. That being that we seem somehow to grasp the rules of limited tenure in business in a way that we do not in the executive branch, not just at the federal level, but in the states as well. For example, Jeb Bush, excellent governor of Florida, left office in 2006, and yet wherever he is introduced, even when he's Uh, introduced personally to people he is introduced the worst. as Governor Bush. Yeah, But he's that. not Governor Bush. This is not a criticism of Jeb Bush, who I think was one of the best governors Florida ever had and who I think is admirable in many ways. But he's not the governor of, governor of Florida. No. He hasn't been the governor of Florida for 16 years and still he is introduced as Governor Bush. But you don't see that business. If someone ceased to be the CEO of Disney 16 years ago, they aren't introduced during speeches or on a personal basis as CEO Michael Eisner. That would be ridiculous. We would instantly be confused by that. They're not even introduced yeah. as former CEO Michael Eisner.
0: <laughs> they might be in some
1: contexts, maybe in the program, but no one says, "Oh, you should meet CEO Michael or former CEO Michael." They just say,
0: "Oh, they wouldn't use Michael. they wouldn't use it as a title." But if you have someone who's maybe not a particularly famous CEO and you're introducing them, you would say this is former IBM CEO, whoever.
1: And if you're introduced to somebody who 20 years ago was the governor of Wyoming, a person almost no one has heard of at any point, then maybe they would say that too. But Mm -hmm. it is just bizarre to me that you know, we hold on some these.
0: former Wyoming governors out there and their listenership right now is steaming what do you mean no one's heard of me <laughs> yeah well, and, and actually that's and, a and good what,
1: example Kevin of how it could be confusing as well as unsmall our republican yeah. because if I'm introduced to someone and they say this is Jimmy he's the you know this is governor Jimmy of Wyoming okay are you now were you 10 years
0: ago <laughs> Yeah, and that's also, you know, because we do have some political dynasties in the United States. So there have been, you know, there's been more than one Governor Bush. Um, I guess there have been a couple of Governor Sununus haven't there. And uh, you know, other uh, right. other names of that sort. But also we don't use those titles like as titles, you know, in in private life. Like unless you're a real weirdo, no one calls the president of the you know, President Smith, whatever his name is. No. Um, You know, it uh, doesn't—Chairman—people used to jokingly call uh, Bill Gates Chairman Bill, uh, but that was, you know, uh, sort of mocking his uh, totalitarian ambitions. uh, At least his style is suggesting that he had kind of totalitarian ambitions to be, you know, everywhere and in everything. And uh, and the fact that he had a kind of cultish devotion among some people the way um, Chairman Mao did once upon a time. You know, you're not uh, probably old enough to remember this. I'm about to go off on a tangent here, sideways, but um, you know, there was a there was a pretty serious draft Bill Gates for president movement uh, back in the '90s, back when no one really knew anything about his political views, and it was such a typically American thing, where he's there, you know he's the wealthiest man in the world, and he founded a very successful company, therefore he must be good at doing the things the federal government does, which of course does not follow in any way. And, uh, the, the kind of, um, weird American habit of thinking, you know, Ross Perot, he was a successful businessman. He'd be a great president. Um, you heard the same arguments for, for Donald Trump who said about disproving them sort of methodically, um, during his time in office, it's one of the superstitions I wish we could liberate ourselves from that. These are comparable skill sets. I mean, there's some private sector CEOs who go on to be pretty good in politics. You know, Mitt Romney was, was pretty effective in, in his roles. And we've seen some other people who, um, do that, but um, it's not just automatically a um, transferable uh, set of skills and uh, talents. Anyway, that was a um, sidebar you were saying.
1: Well, while we're on this and also on Jill Biden, I object to the
0: Prussian, we talk about doctor now? Okay, yeah, Prussian. habit
1: <laughs> of using doctor to describe people who are not medical doctors. I don't have time to explain all of my problems with the PhD system per se or the Prussian model Mm -hmm. of education that colonized the United States in the early 20th century. If you want a longer objection to it, please read my book.
0: But it is
1: (laughs) frustrating that we have two uses for this word that are mutually exclusive. I mean, let's not get on to whether or not Jill Biden has a real educational credential. whatever I she is,
0: she's not a physician.
1: Believe that she doesn't. But yes, she's not a physician. And it corrupts the language. If you stood up on a plane, as the pilot had a heart attack and said, is there a doctor in the house? And Jill Biden put up her hand. It would not be especially helpful. <laughs>
0: no, it certainly wouldn't. Um, nor is she a doctor of the church, to use a uh, sort of third usage of the word um, doctor. I like how that works in some other languages that have these weird little formal tics like uh, commendator in Italian and things like that. But, uh, yeah, the doctor thing. Uh, Jay's written about this, I've written about it, he's written about it. It's, it's a weird thing. And um, the people who insist on it are always kind of the ones you— uh, yeah you're sort of skeptical of, I think Jay was the first person I heard point this out, but, you know, Bill Crystal has a PhD from Harvard. That's a real PhD. You know, no one, he doesn't call himself Dr. Bill Crystal.
1: Um, I instantly think less of someone if they add PhD to their name in everyday life, or they put it as their Twitter handle. And if people use doctor in front of their name,
0: that's a quotidian habit. I'm suspicious. Yeah, I would like you know if if I were a columnist and I were a physician and I wrote about medical stuff, yeah, I'd probably call myself Doctor Will, Kevin Williamson. In yeah, my but that, but
1: that's the usage Certainly. that I'm suggesting is yeah. more useful because it yeah, conveys. Sense, yeah. Look, it's a it, it's hard to find a, a clear equivalent, but there are certain skill sets that people have that are uniformly useful and that we wish to identify at once. For example, if someone is able to save lives or treat wounds or diagnose ailments, perform triage services, there is no plausible circumstance in which it would be inappropriate to convey that. But the circumstances in which somebody who has a PhD in, say, Roman history uh, uh, will be useful are extremely limited. That's not to criticize someone who has a PhD in Roman history, but but it's just not particularly relevant to everyday life. And, you know, (laughs) so if someone introduces themselves and says, Hi, I'm, you know, Dr. Robert, or from the Beatles song, uh, good i now know who in the room has basic medical training uh yeah. if someone introduces themselves and they say hi i'm dr Steven, and what they really mean is that 25 years ago uh they did uh, an advanced degree. terminal degree in
0: sociology yeah well, wh- why do i care <laughs> yeah no one ever shouts is there an essayist in the house do they <laughs> dear hi. god is there a theater critic on this airplane <laughs> doesn't happen doesn't happen what else did we want to talk about this week i think by the way I, I can't remember can you say the word taco have you gone american enough you can say taco or do you say taco
1: i say taco you're like weird
0: taco yeah can't quite get it it's partly spite on.
1: do you know i, I think what i told it? you this that do you remember the old nr office in murray hill and around the corner there was that of course yeah news agents or whatever it was, and they did sandwiches. Uh-huh. And everyone who worked there... Was, they always
0: played classical music really well. That's
1: right, generally Mozart. And everyone yeah. who worked there was either a recent immigrant who spoke Spanish, or a recent immigrant who spoke, I think, Korean? Chinese? Korean? Oh, well, they were Chinese, but Chinese. Um, I could be wrong. I don't speak either of those languages, so it's all Greek to me. Anyhow, The point is that at any juncture, you were almost guaranteed to be speaking to someone who spoke English as a second language. And of course, I have an English accent. And sometimes I found it hard to make myself clear because I pronounced words incorrectly in the American context, most notably tomatoes. (laughs) And when I first moved to America, I couldn't say tomatoes. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. It just felt too wrong. So I buggered on and insisted upon saying tomatoes. And in most cases, the dual language barrier proved too much. So I went, Kevin, for three or four years without having tomatoes on my sandwich <laughs> as a stubborn <laughs> as a stubborn concession to the old country until I eventually gave it up and just went for it and said tomatoes and sort of pinched myself, forgave myself in the moment.
0: And you recall their sandwiches being pretty good, actually. Oh, it was salad, so it was
1: right. good. So
0: good. Yeah, we used to call that place the uh, the Mozart uh, Deli because they played so much Mozart. That's I don't know right. what it was actually officially called. I can't remember.
1: Well, you know, it's still there. And when I was in New York yeah. recently, I had an event, and it just so happened that I spoke during the eating part of the dinner, and my plate got moved away. So when I finished, I walked down there, and I got a late-night sandwich, and it's as good as ever. Oh, good. Glad to hear it.
0: Uh inflation. Should we talk about inflation? What was the report today, 9%? 9.1. So you know, 20 they're just, they're banks... That go on. ...that they didn't have to use, that it wasn't 10. Not because the extra percent hurt so much, just because then you have to hear the words double digit. Yeah.
1: Well, th- there were about 20 banks that offered up predictions, and they ranged from 8.5 to 8.9. So this was worse mm. than any U.S bank had guessed.
0: Yeah. Goodness gracious. And um, so I haven't looked at the inflation news today. Is it um, kind of general and across the board? Is it been driven by a small number of sectors like uh, food and energy, um, as it has been, but not exclusively for a while? Or uh, what does that look like?
1: Well, it seems to be across the board, although there is now an argument as to whether it's out of date. Certainly this is the Biden administration response is that it's out of date because actually there's been substantial movement, especially in energy. And what we're seeing is an a snapshot. Hangover. I don't know if that's true. I don't know enough about economics to know if that's true. What I do know is that the Biden administration and such as Paul Krugman have had an excuse for this for a year and have said this is the last big one, or it's about to improve, or this doesn't count for this reason, or don't worry, next month will be lower, or this is transitory, or even this isn't going to happen, which was the argument being made 15 months ago. So Mm. I'm a little skeptical of the idea that this is out of date. I hope it is. I hope the next one is seven and we start to recover. I think, irrespective of that, the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates again, probably by three quarters of a percentage point. Because, as someone pointed out this morning, they don't operate on what might happen or could have explained what just happened, but what what is happening and what is happening, according to this report, is not good.
0: Hmm. I assume you have a fixed rate mortgage. If you have a journal, and I took it out five years ago everyone's happy to have that yeah i'm gonna have to buy a house here sometime in the next uh, year or so and uh not looking forward to what those mortgage rates are going to be maybe know, uh, it,
1: in england come back down a little bit that they, they now
0: offer fixed rate
1: mortgages but when my parents bought the house that i grew up in that was not common if possible even Almost every mortgage in England in the seventies eighties, and early nineteen nineties was variable rate, and I can remember, really? yeah, David Barnson explained this to me once about how the american financial sector is far more innovative or at least is far more innovative than Britain's was in the seventies and eighties, which shouldn't surprise anyone, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> anyhow i can remember hearing my parents talk about how the mortgage had just exploded in the early 90s uh in a way that is alien to me because you know that that's that's a line item in my budget but it's not going to change
0: yeah i i i remember hearing people talk about you know 16 and 17% mortgages here in the late 70s, early 80s when we had really high interest rates. But um so yeah, I've I've never heard about any place where they mostly had uh variable rate mortgages. I know there are some countries and some cultures where mortgages just kind of aren't a thing, where if you buy a house you you buy it outright and it's rare for people to uh, borrow money to do it or very difficult for that to happen in a lot of places.
1: Hey you go. So I just looked up but the I numbers. Did not know that. <laughs> so my parents bought the house that I grew up in in 1987. When I was three, or two. And the Bank of England base rate at the end of 1987 was eight percent. And by 1989,
0: 1990,
1: it was 14 percent. Jeez. That's like a credit card. And of course that you just get a different bill. One month it comes in, and the next month it's higher, and the next month it's higher, and so on.
0: Oh man, I hate unpredictability. I think it's maybe the most conservative thing about me. I um, I fear change early.
1: Yeah, especially that sort of change. I mean, if it had gone yeah. down, I would be a little more sanguine about the unpredictability.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. That'd be a welcome surprise. But yeah, I kind of like things to be to be predictable, and for things to be what they are said they're going to be. Yeah, that's actually what really bothers me about like uh, flight delays and things like that. I usually bake a lot of extra slack into my schedule. So if my flight's an hour late or two hours late, I'm still going to make my meeting or my, my speech or whatever. But I just, I get bothered by the fact that they said it was going to be X and it's not X. I just hate that broken you know promise. Anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with variable rate mortgages. made me think of it. Anything else we should talk about today?
1: No, I think that'll just about cover it.
0: Actually, maybe one thing we should talk about. Um, I know we're we're running maybe close to the hour here, but um let's I want to bring up one last subject, which is that it um democrats seem to be in open revolt now uh with Biden. You know, there's a kind of there's a new open movement to try to get him not to run in 2024, assuming he's still able to run in 2024. Uh there are a lot of Progressives who are uh openly uh saying it's time for him to go, that he's a kind of millstone, they think they can do better without him, that he was essentially a uh placeholder because it was so important to get rid of Trump, all this stuff. Do you think that there's going to be a uh a real meaningful uh dump Biden movement?
1: Oh, no question. I think Peter Spiliarkos put it well on Twitter yesterday. He said that for a year, the press and the Democrats have underplayed Joe Biden's age and the effect that it's having on his presidency, and now overnight they have decided to overplay it. Yeah, at some point, do you think that wall, it's being overplayed? I think that. Well, I think that they're overcompensating and they're also trying to cast many of the bad political decisions that he has made based on his ideological assumptions as the product of his age rather than of his being in hoc to the Democratic Party's consensus. <clears throat> Either way, I think it will stabilize, but the polling which is what this is really about, is absolutely disastrous for him. And that has given the Democrats and the press the excuse that it needed to start talking about his unsuitability. I would be surprised if this resulted in an open rebellion or in a contested primary. I think it is most likely to... Work behind the scenes, such that Biden ends up announcing at the latest possible opportunity that he has achieved what he wanted to in his one term and now wants to spend more time with his grandkids. What Certainly do you think with
0: his kids.: <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that progressives are fooling themselves, Democrats are fooling themselves if they think that Biden is really their problem. Biden is a problem because, yes, he is old. He is ineffective. He says dumb stuff. He uh, doesn't really have the um, ability or inclination to vigorously pursue their agenda the way they would like him to. But the reason we have almost double-digit inflation and other things that are going to really hurt Democrats is not that Joe Biden is an old coot. It is that he has been implementing and uh, arguing for more of the very programs that they expect to get from a post-Biden Democratic uh, situation. I was just searching for a word there, Charlie. It took me a while to come to it. And uh, so, I think what they're going to end up doing is, um, you know, if they they're going to possibly dump Biden or chase him out, push him out. And I think you're probably right that he'll. If he does that, it'll be at the last minute. And if they are successfully able to replace him, they will probably set about making their problems worse. Because think about it. Inflation would probably be now well into the double digits if Biden had had his way, Um, if he had got that extra couple of trillion dollars of spending through. Yes. So if he had been, you know, if he'd been more successful in giving progressives what they want, Democrats would be in worse shape than they already are. So, you know, presidents are important, obviously, for functional and symbolic reasons. Biden's particular problems are Biden problems, um, but they're not new. The reason the Democrats are in trouble right now isn't that Biden has changed in some radical way. He's the same jackass he's always been. It's that some of their policies have started to produce results that people don't like. And this is something, you know, you hear progressives like to talk about this. You know our, our policies are popular. And they'll, you know, pull this, pull that. And uh, there's some, some, some real legitimate points there. But there's a difference between talking about a policy and finding that it's popular when you're talking about it and getting people to evaluate the actual results of those policies. So people like the idea of spending lots of money, uh, big infrastructure programs, uh, benefits related to the coronavirus and all that spending that we did back then, the extended unemployment benefits, all that stuff that stuff was all popular at the time. Now what we're seeing is partly the result of that excessive spending, and those results are not very popular. So voters aren't always very good at drawing the line between the policies and the policy outcomes, um, because no one went out and said, let's have inflation, and we passed an inflation bill that said there's going to be 9% inflation. This is a result of other policies that were pursued. But people do actually sometimes figure some of that stuff out, and. Um, I do think that progressives are going to have to rethink some of their um, some of their agenda. You know, the cultural stuff right now is not good for them. The, you know, crazy, fanatical, cultish, trans stuff, Latinx stuff, all that. They're wondering why um, some traditional constituencies aren't voting for them anymore. But also some of their bread and butter economic stuff is not actually all that popular, or at least it turns out not to be once the results are really in. So going out and saying, yeah, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money, everyone likes the sound of that, uh, but no one likes $6 gas.
1: I call what you've just described the partial Disney World polling problem. And what I mean by that is, if you ask people, would you like to take your family to Disney World for a week? They say yes. 70, 80% will say yes. If you ask people... Do you want to take your family to Disney World for a week, take a week off of work dollars. and then pay the bill? Yeah. That number drops dramatically. And this is a problem that the Democrats have, exactly as you've described it and have had for a long time. They have it now. That was how they polled Bill Back better. Would you like to do this, 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 and this? But they had it with Obamacare. Megan McArdle wrote really well on this for years. That the Democrats polling on Obamacare never included the cost. They would only talk about the benefits. But the moment you add in, and here is what it will do to your current insurance, here is what it will do to your rates, here is what it will do to your networks, here is what it will do to your current doctors, and so on, people ran away. And so you had this bizarre spectacle in 2009 where... Democratic polling was showing 75% support for Obamacare. But polling that asked people whether or not they wanted Obamacare was at about 30 And some of them convinced themselves, oh, it's because Obama's name is attached to it, or it's because of partisanship, or it's because the president's black. No, it was because you are asking people about the benefits and not the
0: cost. Yeah which is a good way to sell something. Um, if you're a crook. But you, well, sure. We're talking about politicians here, Charles. But um, but it only works if you expect not to have any accountability on the backside. And um, I think Democrats have had reason for a long time to think that they could get away with some of that stuff because they, you know, buddy buddies with the media, that kind of stuff, control of some important key institutions, But that has started to loosen up a little bit. It doesn't matter as much as it did 20 or 30 years ago. They've also been lucky,
1: historically. You and I loathe the idea of president as talisman. We don't like the idea that everything that goes wrong is the president's fault, that everything that is good is the president's doing. And we have to watch against it now. I write in every column in which I criticize Joe Biden that Not all of what is happening is his fault, his party's fault, policy's fault. Some of it's just bad luck. Donald Trump will eventually, or at least his party will, eventually come to uh, uh, come to appreciate that it lost the 2020 election. Because whoever was in charge right now would be suffering from a lot of these problems and the resultant drop in popularity. But Democrats have lucked out in when they have been president. George yep. H.W. Bush got the recession at the beginning of the 90s. wasn't really his fault. And then Clinton got the boom. George W. Bush got the coming down from the 90s and the 2007-8 financial crisis. Donald Trump got COVID, literally, too. <laughs> it's about time, just on averages, that the Democrats happened to be in office when a lot of bad things happened because they haven't been for ages. Now, eventually you get these pieces saying, look what happens when Republicans are in office and when Democrats are in office and it's just correlation in almost every right. case, not causation. Right. But it's still annoying <laughs> if you're a Republican yeah, a, and useful yeah, if you're a Democrat. And it's it's, yeah. I think, uh, it's it's informed the way that Democrats think because they've largely got away with bad consequences and political punishment, even when it was partly their policies. That is the case here that we're to blame.
0: Yeah. All right. I think that about puts the nail in the coffin on this podcast, Charlie. Don't you think so? I do. All right. Talk to you next week.